0: Welcome to Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. I think what I'd like to do, Jordan, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd like to start with the Ereugena paper and just give it, give for those who haven't read it, I'm sure most people who are listening to this have read it or at least have seen references to it online, but give everybody who hasn't read the paper, who might not even know what's at stake in the paper, just give us a short rundown of what you're trying to do there as it relates to this doctrine of christ and creation and then and then i'll launch into some questions from that point
1: yeah so um so the so the essay i wrote was i think it was called what are you gonna learn from maximus about creation as god's self-creation and uh it's for a volume actually that's going to come out oh man i don't even remember who the publisher is who it was it's it's but it's about maximus and the latin west so Oh, okay. his re- his reception in the Western or the Latin tradition, obviously Aion is a big player in Erigena, just for I'm sure people probably are familiar, but just quickly, ninth century Irish theologian and uh, Carolingian court theologian. Now he's a layperson. he's not a priest or a bishop or anything. He sort of brought into these controversies. He's very good at reading Greek, which seems to be relatively rare at the time of that time and place. He translates uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, all of his works, like the divine names and all that. Yep. And he translates uh, Maximus's two major works, uh, the Ambigua and the response, questions response responses to the Thalassius about scripture. Anyway, so Areuja, but Arija also writes a massive work called On the Division of Nature, or the Periphysion. Mm mm-hmm. And uh, that's mostly what my. Although I also pull from his homily on the go- prologue of the Gospel of John, um, which was famous and uh, yeah, Astrack, justly or, so. That's a great. That that's yeah, it's astounding work. Yes, it is. It's it's wonderful. It's crazy how the brevity, you know, how quickly he can get to the heart of things with uh, sort sort of like John, I guess, but. Um, yeah. So, anyway, Eriugena, uh, very much. He's he's such a fascinating figure because he's received. He knows Augustine well. Right. He knows the Latin tradition well and the Latin fathers. He will cite Ambrose. He will cite um, every once in a while. He'll cite you know Jerome, kind of more rarely there, uh, and and Augustine a lot. I actually think Augustine gets the most citations in the periphysion for example which is which in english by the way is 715 pages so it's it's a lot a lot of citations but very often you'll notice what he's trying to do is negotiate because what he's discovering in the greek fathers in the east at least on the surface on some fairly fundamental points like the fall uh you know sin christology um deification especially like in the end seems to be contradictory or at least contrary or at least not immediately um, harmonious so and one thing that era you can see him on several occasions in there get nervous about or trying to anticipate he basically usually sides with the greeks Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in fact there's one time he uh kind of i think shows his hand and he says uh the greeks who as usual are more precise (laughs) say this or whatever so anyway so he's always the kind of negotiating, which I, I find that fascinating. Because really, if you're if you're thinking about the if you're thinking about Maximus, I figure like Maximus's reception in Western Christianity, basically the the last time prior to say the 20th century that you get a very clear and knowledgeable attempt to synthesize these two would be would be Eriugena.
0: Yeah.
1: So anyhow, that's just a little background to why he's there, why he's center stage. Now, this particular idea about God's self-creation. So Ari as he's thinking through um, Dionysius, Gregor of Nyssa is another person he knows, uh, especially uh, on the making of the man or as Father Bear has it right on, on the human image. Yeah. Um he knows that work well. He does conflate Gregory of Nyssa with Gregory Nazianzus but anyway. So he just refers to one Gregory the theologian, two <laughs> Gregory of Nyssa, <laughs> <Totally> agree, <right? laughs> although it's you know he's confused a little because he thinks he thinks Maximus in the ambiguous commenting on Gregory the same Gregory. Mm, yeah. So he, th- he thinks like Gregory the, the of Nazianzus is Gregory of Nyssa. So when he's reading Gregory of Nyssa's making a man he thinks that that's the same person that maximus is interpreting right so anyway but um so he he not only and this is this is important because he not only i think receives them and tries to harmonize them with with the latin side but he also is developing he himself is a creative synthetic mind so on this point particular especially in book three of um of uh, the periphysion he discusses um creation from nothing and i think it's one of the most interesting discussions of what it means to say creation came from nothing and yet god is the cause yeah the sole yeah. cause right and th- this is sort of the problematic s- simplified that's that's sort of what he's getting at is well, hold on on the one hand in this dialogue form i'm not going to get into all that but basically the, these two uh, the master and the student are talking and it it comes in the course of their conversation that on the one hand we we sort of say without thinking that God is the cause of all things. And that's, yeah. that's a sort of seeming like, I mean, it's the first part of the creed there. I mean, it's right, right there. This is God. God is the creator. On the other hand, we say creations from nothing. Now, typically people think of that in a negative way, right? Well, all that means is say, say something like uh, it means something like there was no prior matter that, um, you know, God sort of had to wrestle with as if matter was eternal alongside God or whatever. And so saying that creation's from nothing is just to say everything that exists is nothing but the product of God's own creative will. But um, but Eugenio wants to go a little further. And again, he's sort of helped by some of the Greek thinkers. And he says, but you know, that's, I think, I think I'd put it this way. His question is, okay, that's fine. That makes sense. There's nothing prior to creation in that sense that God has to contend with or overcome or deal with. When he goes to create the world, so to speak. And even there, we're misspeaking. Mm-hmm. But I think the deeper question is how is it, or how do you talk about God bringing forth not God from God?
0: Yeah,
1: right. That's kind of getting at the heart of it. Like you might say, how is God the one cause? If God is the one and highest and prime cause, it stands to reason that the way in which that occurs, or you can understand that isn't just like every other instance of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And so, and yet you need to say something, right? This is always the problem of theology. you got to say something. So he ends up identifying the nothing whence creation comes with God himself in two senses. On the one hand, God is properly speaking, and here he's relying especially in Dionysius, God is no thing. Right, yeah, right. And in fact, Ere here's a good instance of where he'll he'll develop. He not uh, not only says God is no thing, he says that in the in a in a certain really uh, necessary sense, God doesn't even know God's self. Well, right. that's not what he says. He says God he doesn't know nature. what he is, he doesn't yes, know, he what does know he his own nature, exactly. Because, in fact, there is one passage where he clarifies, it doesn't mean God doesn't know God's self. What it means is God is not a what to know. Yes, right. And he and I love it. This is brilliant the way he puts it. At one point, is so well stated. He says, because even if what we are saying when we say God is infinite and beyond our knowledge, if we really are saying God nevertheless knows himself, it would be as if God knows himself as finite. Mm-hmm. Yep. God knows what he is, like he's just sort of this definable essence that you can encapsulate in a definition. And so is it the case that the infinite is finite to himself? No, right? Can't and be. so yeah, can't, can't be. be. Yeah. can't be. So what he means, and, you know, and uh, Origen had played with this a little bit way back. And, and also Origen does seem to be aware of Origen, at least uh, some of his main stuff. And uh, anyway, so Origen is, so in that sense, God is nothing. God is the nothing whence creation comes because God is no thing in the sense of no essence. He's no definable reality that you can encapsulate in a phrase, definition, or, or like a formula. So, or quiddity, they would say. So, uh, so in that sense, God is super eminent. He's super essential. He's above essence. He's above, uh, that kind of knowing and yet of course god knows god's self it's that it's just that god really knows god's self not as finite but as infinite mm-hmm. which is which i think ultimately if i could jump ahead i would say he is uh, infinitely in- interpersonal but so that's one sense in which god is nothing but the other sense you know erigen is one thing i really like about him is that he doesn't think even that is totally satisfactory because there's still the there's still just the fundamental question never goes away, and that is in what sense is God related to the something that comes out of nothing, which He is. <laughs> and I think the deepest point, and this is, goes to the idea of self creation, the deepest point that I I get, and that I argue in the essay that he gets, especially from Maximus, is is that. Really, when we speak about creation, we are already speaking about what in Christology we would call the communication of idioms or the coincidence of opposites. Yeah. Yeah. Which, like Nicholas of Cusa, will pick up on. He studied their age in his text very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other words, when you're thinking about how it is that something could come from the super essential nothing that God is, you're thinking already about. How could God be both the cause and,
0: the and in
1: some sense, the cause exactly? Yeah. Um, which is to say, you're already thinking, whether you know it or not, Christologically. Yeah, you're already asking the exact same questions that we asked of, of Jesus of Nazareth when you say, "Well, hold on, how can that the caused be the cause at the same time in Himself? How can He be both?" And so I think that's the most sort of fundamentally brilliant insight. What what Air Eugenia ends up saying is the reason why we can affirm both that creation is from nothing and yet creation's ultimate source and therefore end is God Himself, is because God can and does create himself in and as creation. Mm. Which is which is to I think say, you know, sort of what we've talked about before that uh, from Maximus a creation is an incarnation. That's right. Yeah, I mean, one 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 way of framing
0: that, right, is if you've got the, the problem of how does God create that which is not God from himself, you've also got the exact other side of that, which is how is that which God makes from himself as not God actually God? Right? Absolutely. <laughs> like it, so that's the Christological, I mean, you can only think that if you think, what, what you just named communication is about communication of attributes and the coincidence of opposites in this person. Yes. Right. Like I, that's that, as far as I can see, there's no other way to go.
1: There's an excellent passage in the homily on the, uh, on the uh, prologue to John's gospel, which which is exactly addressed to that. In fact, it's almost like Ariogen, knew new probably had experienced people being incredulous towards the idea of deification. Mm. And he said, he says, uh, when he says, uh, I think it's when he's commenting on verse 14. I, I don't totally remember if that's right, but uh, where the word became flesh and he says, you know, the word became came flesh and dwelled among us. If you are tempted and he even puts it in like those terms, if you are tempted to think that it's too high of a thing for God to make you uh, Gods out of human beings. See that the God who became a human being has already in Himself done something greater. You know, by being both, he He says he is already both. And so, why would he says why would it be so wonderful and impossible to believe that he who has already done a greater thing? You know, sort of rhetorically, there a greater thing. Oh,
0: that's yeah, that's such a brilliant passage. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah. And so that's exactly right. So that, to be honest with you, when I went to writing the essay. I already kind of had a take on it, which, which in my book I sort of give slight voice to, which was a little more skeptical that Ariadne had successfully, in my in my assessment, uh, integrated some of these insights from Maximus. And in some ways, I I don't think that's entirely wrong. And other scholars had, had made a similar um, judgment. But honestly, doing uh, you know studying and researching for this essay and then writing it, I kind of I kind of changed a little. I shifted my I think he was a lot closer than I I had I had first realized. So yeah,
0: and so for maybe I have it here. I'll read just a bit of that passage where he where he talks about encompassed uh where he, you you talk about it as a mistranslation. Right. Let me see if I if I I can call it up here. I should have had it already. Yeah, so the way Eurydice has it is that the whole man is wholly encompassed by the whole of divinity right mm-hmm. but you're arguing that it's pretty clear and i think you're right that maximus is saying not encompassed but pervading right, right. the whole man pervades though so talk just a little bit about that and i mean is is arios obviously he knows greek well so is he is this a mistranslation or is he playing fast and loose because of his readers anxiety i mean do you have a sense of why what's happening there and then i have a i have a proposal i want to run past you but just yeah
1: first. so yeah so originally that's how my first version of this which which was like a conference paper or something i did years ago ended i ended with this i ended with this like well look see he, he uh he can't even quite get the translation <laughs> like and it was a, it's a subtle it's an indirect point but it's a point that kind of says you know it kind of maybe shows that he just doesn't quite get it he doesn't quite get the the you know because what we're talking about here is the quantum stuff that 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 we become god to the same degree that god became human which is something Maximus says all the time yes so it's a mutual it's an interpenetration, it's a perichoresis vertically as it were uh which which is pretty unimaginable between god and the world yeah um, and the saints and so um and so what i tried to you know when i originally thought about this i sort of ended there I was like look here he, it's pretty obvious it's like kind of one directional it's it's the whole man is pervaded or encompassed mm-hmm. by uh by the whole god whereas the text from ambiguous 41 that he's translating the greek more clearly is active and it says the whole man pervades the whole god it's, yeah like yeah. upwards um and what I think, what I think was wrong, or not, not really the full picture about what I originally thought. So, so that's what I was trying to make that point originally. Um, And I do think there is a sense I'll pause here for a second, say, I don't think Eryugina, just because nobody at that time and place was, I don't think they were totally privy to all of the like, you know, technicalities and subtleties of the Sixth and seventh Christological debates, right? So you won't see a word like in hypostasized. Yeah, and Pearl is it Pearl, right? Who makes yeah. a of that fact? Yeah. Yes, yes, and and so I was originally kind of just like agreeing with him, like yeah, you yeah, know, he's right. This is kind of a this is a shortcoming if you if you're judging Eutychus from you know Maximian canons. But what I didn't realize sufficiently was that if you just keep going further into book five, the last book of Perifizion, um, not only does, does Ariogenes uh, show a very clear awareness of what you might call the part-whole Christology of Maximus mm-hmm. and of the neo broadly, which he, he does, he clearly does. Yeah. And he doesn't, by the way, go the, go the Augustinian route of the totus Christus, but he also
0: knows because he uses that language, but then you, you, he uses
1: yes. conceptually. Precisely. And, you know, he doesn't do like what uh, what um, Augustine does, and I can't remember what sermon it is now, but uh, he, where Augustine explicitly says, he raises, you know, he, he, he makes an explicit qualification and says, when I say the whole Christ, I don't mean like literally this is Christ's body or whatever. I mean, sort of this rhetorical thing where Christ is speaking on behalf of us and we're sort of in a way connected to Christ, related to Christ in the church well you never going to find that uh qualification in eriugina and in fact you what you really get what i was astounded to see was he conceives of the entire return which is to say deosis deification mm. the final achievement of god's creation where he also says it's the, it's a it's it's a the end is that is is god not only not created but also not creating which is a mm. sense you know that's an there's a whole other thing there but um But let's just say the return, which is all the last book is about, he conceives it as nothing other than, yeah, the the the, uh, in fact to speak a little Lutheran here, he conceives it as nothing other than the ubiquity of the God human, the one, the whole Christ who is both human and divine, and therefore whose humanity is just as omnipresent absolutely yeah the as, and the Lutherans are loving this right? and they're I mean, loving this yes, absolutely. and it's amazing i sent some passages to some some people that were uh you know looking into some of this and i was like look i mean just look at this stuff this is this is like straight out of you know what you would expect from from like a lutheran dogmatics or so so yeah anyway so so that's the way now he's not just making a point about the eucharist or some of that there clearly and he uses some of that language but he really is making still a metaphysical point an eschatological point and he's saying actually this is the logic of the whole and that's the point that i realized is like okay whatever is going on i don't exactly know what ex- what's going on in the translation there I'm not sure if he just was sort of thought it was an awkward phrase or if he was trying to mollify it a little bit for the readers but clearly by the time you get to the fifth book um and that book that huge book was written over like five or six years when you get to the fifth book, uh, he's very much going to the whole Christ, unqualified, right. as the very way in which, to come back to our original point, right, ultimately God achieves or actualizes the coincidence of opposites, which is creation, which is the whole Christ.
0: In, in himself, in such a way that what he is and who he is, right, have this kind of reciprocity. Yeah. That, I mean, that's where I want to take this conversation, is that... that mm-hmm. No, and I I want to tease out a little bit or hear you tease out a little bit out kind of who Maximus obviously works that out in great detail. Is that reciprocity already there in Dionysius? Do you think? Is it already there in origin? Like we'll get to that, but let me let me ask you about this first. So I I'm reading around the other day and I stumble on a passage I'm sure you're gonna know really well. Um it's question sixty-three in questions to, to Thelasius or from And it's, Maximus is talking about the light that no one puts under a bushel, the lamp.
1: Hmm. And I
0: had just read earlier that day, I think maybe the day before your, your paper about Aria, and this just hit me and I wanted to see what you make of it, right? So it's 63.3 is the paragraph. So he's talking about the light that's on top of the lampstand. It's the father's true light. And he says, this same word and wisdom clearly calls himself a lamp. Because being God by nature, he became flesh according to the dispensation of salvation. Thus, after the manner of a lamp, he who is light according to essence was through the intermediary of the soul contained without circumscription like fire around a wick. So contained like fire around a wick. So the light is contained but like fire around a wick without circumscription, right? Mm-hmm. Within the earthen vessel of his flesh. Now, you know, Maximus a lot better than I do, but I, I mean, we're used to the metaphor of iron in the fire, right? He, he will also write, use the the metaphor and Eriugin picks up on this mm-hmm. of light in the air,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but this is a different metaphor. And I wonder if it's a way of hearing the encompassed
1: mm-hmm. as a way
0: of pervading so that like, yeah. it's a it's a metaphor that allows you to say something can be around and outside and yet integral true integral too so just think for a little bit i'm sure you you've had maybe you've written about it and i've missed it but what do you make of that metaphor as it relates to this question going on between them the can in in the sense of where the action is coming from right the whole man pervading or the whole man being encompassed by
1: Right. Yes. And I think that's, this is a, that so the, the passage you're, you're looking at there is one, it's a great example of the, I guess I should say the challenge of reading Maximus, right? Because if you're just sort of hopping around, which you've, you've read a a lot of Maximus, so you're not, but if somebody was and say, they already kind of have a pretty rigid uh, idea of like what it means to say, participate. Yeah. in God yeah. or in existence yeah. then you know you could read that and you could say, okay I mean I guess it sounds like he's saying that in some sense the you know the like if we're the wick or in this case the humanity is the wick, you know God sort of will allow the wick to participate in the burning which is inherent in the in the flame mm-hmm. but um, you know but sort of the flame is its own thing and by nature is burning Well like you're pointing out though you're noticing another side of the metaphor or yeah. the image because it, it's it's just as true to say that the wick is sustaining the the light
0: that, and that's the point i think he's making actually exactly like, we jump to we oh, jump to this oh, He's just there for the fire yeah. but the point he's making is no the wick is what's giving the fire its its integrity
1: and i think it's a i think it's question six uh, for some reason i'm thinking six or fifteen and i'm mixing them up right now but Earlier in that work, he actually explicitly addressed the first John passage, which says if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Mm. And Maximus notices, he says, well, hold on a second. What does it mean to say God is in the light if God is light? It's the same kind of issue here, right? Absolutely. Usually we say we are in the light, but scripture shocks you and says, actually, he is also in the light. So what does it mean to say he's in himself? He is the light that he himself is in, and so he is also that which is in light. And okay, we're well, here, we are again, once again in Christ, right? And it's like, and it's like, well, actually, that's because he is also in the light as as the God Man, and then he, of course, will go on and say, and he is in you, and since you are in the light, and since you and he are right, uh, are interpenetrating, and you're identical in a certain superlative way. He is, he takes on what is also characteristic of you. So he is in the light in you and That's you right. are, you are in the light in him. And we've got that. We've got that perichoresis once again, and actually just a side note to, to, to um, well, just to link it to something else that Ereugena says elsewhere in the periphysion, he has this really kind of shocking passage where he, he even says, how does he put it? I wouldn't get, the, I wouldn't get it right. He says that the, and he's coming on this verse from Psalms. Oh, it would be better if I could recall the exact verse, but he he says uh, there's something about being born. Uh, anyway, let's just say the upshot of his interpretation of the psalm is that the eternal generation of the sun uh, terminates, he says, in the saints. Mm. Mm. It's, it's something about the glory of his light or something like that, the glory of his light or something like, that. and he says the glory of his light reaches its sort of it's it's manifestation in the saints as as like sort of it's a it's just a similar kind of logic that god is not just the light that we are in yes but god is so in his humility and in his kenosis in his incarnation which is always going everywhere and in all things hmm. he is also that which is in the light because he is so identified with us so that kind of reciprocity yeah i think i think so I think because you, you are sensitized to and you're aware of the whole picture, yeah, it's amazing how those images that Maximus will use or or, or you know, will use, you can totally see the reciprocity rather than jumping straight to an asymmetrical, unilateral. That's right. God is sort of just fine without you and we can understand what it even means to say God is without you and then you're just lucky to get to kind of join the party.
0: Yeah, so but I'm reading... Um, Eckhart again and the McGinn um, has an essay I think it's in the co- a collection called Christian mysticism that he edited but don't quote me on that but he has an essay about what he he takes you know some of us can't b- get by with this but again can get by with giving a kind of overview of the history of christian mystical <laughs> spirituality and he anyway he talks in there about essentially there are with all kinds of variations right there there are two streams of mysticism in the christian tradition one is a mysticism of distinction in which We can only say so much because we want to make sure that we don't lose the distinction between God and us, between God being God and us being God's creatures, our otherness from God. And then mystics of indistinction, he calls them, who insist that when all is said and done, you can't make that distinction. And he doesn't make this point, but I think that the Christological one is in Christ, you can't, you can perhaps make the distinction, but you can't make a separation. Right, not, right. not if the Neo Calcedonians are right. Like yes. you, you might be able to say conceptually, we can distinguish these things, but we can't, we can't separate them. And I think, of course, that they are right. But anyway, in that point, he's, he talks about Eckhart as kind of a, an exemplary figure for the mystics of indistinction. Mm-hmm. And he has this one line in which he says, again, Eckhart, for Eckhart, indistinction and distinction are reciprocal concepts yes reciprocal concepts and as soon as i read that i was like this is maximus that all concepts yes are reciprocal and must be because of who the word is so talk to us a little bit about reciprocity like what what goes off for you hearing mcginn talk in those ways about about mysticism
1: oh man yeah this gets so oh so i think yeah What's the best way? to? So I would say, like, you can make a logical point, right, about reciprocity. And this is what I think people get afraid of, because you can make like the dialectical point, which, by the way, Erie Juna does. He, he'll say that about cause and effect. There's, there's one part where he says there, he says, an effect is but a made cause. And he says, it is, you know, which just does seem to reason when you think about it. But he's like, you know, if there were no effect, there would be no cause right and and let's just pause there for a second so that's like a point shelling makes (laughs) but it's uh it's why is that i know it seems obvious but let's just for just rest there for a second and say well because either the thing is in its identity integral to it is cause Mm -hmm. therefore in order for something to have a cause it needs an effect otherwise you wouldn't even think to call it that it wouldn't wouldn't have the name cause it wouldn't even have the name so it's either that it would it would be non-existent so there is just simply no cause therefore no effect and there's no effect because there's no cause and that's both true or it would be totally different it'd be something totally different that whatever it is that we go to name it or call it would almost as it as it were be replacing it with some other reality so you're not even talking about what you first called cause yeah so that sounds like a kind of just obvious observation, but it's just that it's so profoundly important because we we quickly when we go to make distinctions and Arendt and will call this the whole uh, you know he's pulling from the liberal arts tradition he calls it the whole thing is called dialectic. Two, there's two components to dialectic. One is uh, is um, uh, 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 what does he like to call it? I think he also calls it dialectic sometimes. what's it's like parsing apart. Mm-hmm. And then he calls analysis. I think we in English have tr- sort of turned this around, but he calls analysis uh, because the word, right, the Greek word, means sort of like to to tie back up.
0: Mm. Yeah, so yeah, you, t- yeah.
1: you take part. So a dialectic, the two movements of dialectic, according to Arendt's understanding of the seven liberal arts, is that you learn how to take things apart, which are presented to you in unified ways, and you do that through concepts and through language and grammar and all the all that stuff through logic. And you take apart its components, and you see how each one works, what it is, how it relates to other parts, and then you put them all back together that's the second movement that's analysis, so sometimes he actually even calls deification analysis he hmm. calls it's sort of like our uh, god's analysis of us this is is a uh, is his tying it all back up the return into unity so um I say all that because he constantly is noticing that or is just constantly noticing that you know when we say when we say a cause we're already yes we're distinguishing cause and effect but we're also automatically tying them together yeah. because they literally have no sense they you wouldn't even think to to use the term or concept if they if you weren't con i mean concept right grasp with you're grasping yeah. all these things together together would, yeah, yeah. So he says that about, but he also says that about, for example, the word of God, the wisdom of God through whom and in whom all things were made and the words, or he yeah. sometimes calls them the primordial causes or the principle, or we might say for was the Logi, um, you know, the principles of all things, which again, in our first, usually in our initial sophisticated attempt to grasp this, we will think of this as explicitly or not before that's right yeah right and why do we do that well because we're already thinking cause well and and, and so what, what you know there has to be a cause there sort of as it were already there before mm-hmm. in order to effect and that's typical to our experience etc cetera, etc cetera. so if there's if god is back here we are back to the creation for nothing if god is the sole source the sole cause the capital C cause of all things. So we're monotheists in that way. Then you're automatically in a certain framework, which is distinguishing, sure, to make sense of things, to make things evident. Like God is cause, we are effects. We come from God, God is father in some way, right? That stuff. But you're also binding together all of the very same concepts you're using to grasp you're buying. You're grasping it with a bunch of other things, and they're already related, and you may or may not even think about that. Yeah. So on on this level, on in this from this perspective, reciprocity is almost just a. a it's an observation about logical relations. Cause implies effect, but just as much as it the case that effect implies cause? Yeah, that's right. So you're, it's reciprocal logically. Yeah. The word of God implies words of god if it is not only the word from the father but also the word through whom all things are made so now we're we're tying in together right um and you could do that with all kinds of, he does it by the way with space time interestingly he follows maximus uh, again sort of against augustine um and says actually space and time are always relative he uses those terms uh re- co-relative with one another you can't think one without the other so Precisely in the act of distinguishing, you're also binding together. So all of these different... Just to underscore that, I mean, the way that Jensen would talk about this
0: would be to say, his argument, right, is that the history of theology going wrong is the history, largely the history, of trying to protect ourselves from the future and trying to protect God from us, right? So we're essentially insisting on these othernesses right this distinction between god and us or we don't want reciprocity mm-hmm. and we want like we need that in order to make sure that we get gain some kind of what he would call religion a way of controlling what the what the future is going to bring and but his point over and over and over again was that there's and, and this is kind of all the way through his career is that there's just no way like what what secures the distinction that matters is the identification
1: right right like right.
0: The, the, what actually establishes the creator creature distinction is that it's the same one who is both god and creature yes, rather exactly. than seeing that as the problem to be solved mm-hmm. that's the framework in which all other problems make sense he says
1: yes totally i think that's
0: right i think he's i think he got there even somehow he had stumbled his way to that kind of working back through the Lutherans to, to the fathers. But I think that's exactly where Maximus takes us. Right.
1: Absolutely. And it's, and it's, I think that's what, you know, it's what Ari Eugenia I think learned from Maximus especially is exactly that is that the subject, here's kind of a big way to put this. And I'll I'll come back to the reciprocity thing in a second as well. Um, (laughs) I've been fond of saying it this way for a while now. I think really what's our pro uh, what a perennial problem is and where you get pendulum swings one way or the other is that we're basically poised when we go to grasp these things in theology, we're poised between two absolutes, God mm-hmm. and everything else.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now there's a lot of systems in which you wouldn't, there wouldn't really even be attention. You wouldn't sense it as a problem because ultimately one gives to the other, gives way for the other, or turns into the other, or absorbed into the other, where one's an illusion or whatever, and some of that's true actually, even about the world now in my opinion, so I don't even think that's totally wrong headed to think one way or the other, but really, the thing you can almost reduce it to the greatest commandments that you know love God and love your neighbor as yourself, or the first John sort of how can you love God if you don't you know that you don't see if you don 't love the one you see. Um, however you want to think of it, ethically, spiritually, life of discipleship or not, One, the big picture is that we constantly are giving ultimate, permanent, unyielding value to what seem to be distinct and therefore separable realities that yes. even if you don't want to make them rivalrous, like there's a lot of theologians that don't want to make them rivalrous, I would argue still, they still sort of subtly are. And and exactly to the degree to which, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, it's the degree to which you feel like you need to posit some kind of asymmetrical resolution that says, well, ultimately, what's really real is God without the world. Yeah. Or, you know, if you want to sort of neo-pagan, I don't know, if you want to go a different route, you could say, you know, what's the only thing that's real? Is, is matter and what's right in front of us and what we can study and observe through natural hard sciences. So we're constantly poised between two absolutes. But what what's, again, the fundamental truth here is that there's a kernel of truth in both pendulum swings because the truth, going back to what we've been saying, is that the one God is both at once. And the fact that he is the self-same person subject is the subject of both created and uh, uncreated or creatorism. And creation or cause and caused. The fact that he is the same subject means that he is lending, to put it crudely, he is lending or giving or infusing (laughs) his own absolute infinite value into both at once. And so our very struggle between the two, the pendulum swings, the oscillations between the two absolutes is actually a sign of his own mysterious absolute infinity right, the whole Christ, the totus Christus, the true totus Christus, Uh, the, and and so that, that is another way to understand this, this, because here's the, here's the thing, back to reciprocity real quick, when, when people recognize, whether it's in Eugenia, or in Hegel, or in whoever, they recognize this logical reciprocity of our concepts that we use, and, and and so the question becomes this, Are you going to say that the, are you going to see the inseparability of the distinguished things, the conceptually distinguished realities or dimensions? Are you going to see that inseparability as a, as a sort of an ultimate monism, like a sign that everything really is just one and there's nothing, no distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And some people would fault Spinoza for that. And, you know, I'm not going to get into whether or not that's accurate, but let's just say there's a possibility there, at least in, in theory. Or are you going to, and I think this is the way theology typically goes from 19th century on at least, um, when they're facing this problem of reciprocity of the concepts. They want to say, actually, the fact that they're distinguished means that they're they're seeming inseparability. What we want to do is we want to see the true miracle of creation in their actual separability. And that sounds abstract, but it actually is not at all, because basically, here's another way to put it. In order for us to be free, we need to get ourselves free of God. That's right. That's what it comes down to. Absolutely.
0: That freedom is, by definition, that which... Keeps me free of God. Yeah, free
1: of God. That way we can have the drama. We can have the development. We can have salvation history. We can read the Bible in a more uh, realistic, if even if not literalistic, but a realistic kind of dramatic, real way. Like God really is interacting with his people. And I get that. There's something. There's a kernel of truth in that, too, of course. And, and the development is there, of course. But and this is where I think the mystics like Eckhart back to begin. so this is where it becomes crucial, though the question is not whether or not i do and 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 almost daily in some way or another experience freedom that in that way i do i think i think we all experience it that way mm. the question is whether or not my experience is more determinative of the ultimate truth than christ is
0: yeah oh, that's that's exactly right is it something christ himself has to answer to and i think this is where you know working you know teaching undergraduates for so many years being a pastor working in a parish, like you realize that I think if you have a certain level of theological education, you learn there are certain things you can't say, <laughs> even though conceptually you still hold to it. Whereas young students, you know, people in our churches, lay persons, they recognize that what we're actually saying, right, is that there's a there's a dividedness to reality. There's God and the other stuff, right? There's good and there's evil. Mm-hmm. And that that 's the fundamental condition to which God and Christ and we all answer, mm-hmm. and they think like that right and, th- and what hit me not that long ago a couple of years maybe is that one of the reasons I think c s Lewis has the popularity he has is that he 's able to give a kind of articulation to that vision, which is ultimately tragic, like when he writes his eschatology, mm-hmm. he writes about the great divorce. Mm that ultimately all things, the return, right? The return is, I mean, it's fascinating to think about what Ariugena says about the return and those who are kind of kept almost at a distance, similar to what Lewis says, right? In the great divorce, that there are Mm -hmm. some people who can't get all the way into the deep light of Mm -hmm. of heaven. Mm -hmm. They stay on the outskirts because the light is painful. They're not solid enough yet. It's very similar, right? To what Ariugena says about, the pain of what God has brought about. But the fundamental difference is for Ereugena, the end of all things is a great marriage, right? It's a marriage feast and mm-hmm. there's still room there for what, how do people respond to the fact that now they're, they're thrust into the marriage feast. Maybe some people don't want to be there. They don't like the taste of the wine or something, you know, to play with the metaphor, <laughs> but like, that's where we're headed for him. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so for Maximus and origin and so on down the line, but for Lewis, and I think for kind of popular Western Christianity, Catholic and Protestant, we're headed toward a tragic division, a, a great divorce, mm-hmm. to which God has always already had to answer himself, right? Mm-hmm. So that the incarnation then can't help but be a humiliation, because God is having to become that which is utterly opposed to him, right? Mm-hmm. That there's a, there's a way in which God has to not be God in order to be human. Right and and so on at, at every front right that these things instead of having reciprocity in them there's a deep fundamental metaphysical rivalry yes again, that Jesus himself has to answer to so justice and mercy in god and so on right right through all of the the attributes of god and all the ways in which god cares for us to me this this is the fundamental decision you have to make theologically and spiritually like mm-hmm. do you really think god and christ and and we have to answer to that fundamental dividedness
1: mm-hmm.
0: or does jesus set the terms of all reality mm-hmm. for god and for us yes and he sets the term in the communion of his attributes and in the coincidence of these oppositions then we're not moving towards some great divorce because we've already arrived at the marriage that he's accomplished in himself between god and creation, justice and mercy and so on down the line. So h- how would you riff on that? Does that strike you as close to what what you're doing
1: or Yeah, no, absolutely. That's because here's the thing, and like and I get <laughs> I get this I get this. I understand why it can appear this way initially. I'm gonna, I'm going to make a statement and then I'll try to unpack it. I think it's related to what you're saying. Right. Um we live in a time and in the aftermath of a time where system building or syntheses are viewed as totalitarian. Mm. It's hubristic. Yeah. It's yeah. prideful. Who are you? You know, you're a worm. Yeah. How could you possibly understand all this stuff? And and so it's what I would almost call the bad mystery. Mm. Really it's, it's a, um, actually the, <laughs> and so people will say, you know, this is, um, This, I actually had, there was a theologian not long ago, I was in a conversation with um, a panel, and one of the things he actually said, and he's a really, really sharp guy and stuff, and I respect a lot of his work, but he said, you know, when you say things like, it's of God's very essence to go out of his essence, and like, and like, um, you know, and so also, will we all go out of our, like, he's like, it just, it's just sort of like, that sounds kind of frightening to me. Right. And I'm like, okay. So, I mean, unless you're just imagining God as this great goblet full to the brim of water and he's spilling over and you're going to be drowned in the flood. Um, why would that be scary? Why would that be frightening? And
0: it's, not, and it's I, not frightening when we experience it, when we see that happening in life, like when, when we see it happening to our children, yes, it doesn't frighten us.
1: No. It, it, and that's, and and here's, here's a deep kind of, um I think the tragedy is this we don't trust those moments yeah yeah we don't think that's real we think it's an escape for for a brief time mm-hmm. really what it is is a portal it's a portal it's a window into the truth and so synthesis, and it, but here, here's the other thing, you can't deny synthesis, this is the other, this is the kind of thing, even though we live in a time, and I know I'm painting with broad brushes there, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not making some absolute claim here, that would be totalitarian for real, but, uh, but I'll just say, uh, there's a lot of skepticism about, you know, trying to, to synthesize these things and to bring together the fragments and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, here's the problem. Uh, in my opinion, that's just that's just already in us to want that because it's just it's the hunger of love. Yeah. Love love brings together that which seems separate, and it makes possible uh, what seems impossible. And yes, our world is marred by tragedy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, I've made a whole argument in the book that uh, this world, in a lot of ways, isn't even the world yet. That's right, and yeah. isn't even creation. And so, and so, but here's the here's the point. At the end of the day, this the true synthesis requires extreme humility. Mm-hmm. Because it, it requires you to doubt even your own certainties about tragedy and, and your uncertainty about the limits of your certainty yeah. and your own certainty about surely God can't do better than what I know right now and here and now. Like there's nothing more. Mm-hmm. And that that's a sort of, uh, that will never be resolved because within us is the hunger, not just for eternal life, but, mm-hmm. but identification sure a, a, a very difficult or perhaps inconceivable technically inconceivable identification with the one god is mm-hmm. he after all our one source and end or not it, am i truly myself when i'm with him and 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 he is all pervading you know all encompassing was it earlier and he's pervading me and i'm pervading him is galatians 2 20 truly when i'm myself or not um is it really as colossians 3:11 says when christ is and is in all things is that the is that actually what this all the spiritual life stuff is about like it says or not and it's actually difficult to doubt my own negative tragic pessimistic judgments about this failed world and to, and it's difficult to doubt that this it must be the limit we we already know the limits of what can be and what will be but i think confessing belief in the god man and 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 the incarnation and then the you know and then the god man saying to you as maximus highlights many you know emphatically um when he says you know that he is the poor man and maximus has a (laughs) dash dash and says god himself says this to you it's like he knows he knows it's going to be hard for your your sad morose in uh, pride which is what it is you take pride in your own ability to be pessimistic um he knows it's going to challenge that and we and you know and this is something that certain theologians i think have picked up on that i agree with it. it's like there's a kind of sense in which you know the more pessimistic your eschatology the more serious of a person you are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the more clear-eyed you are about the world as it is And what i want to say is your presumption that yeah. what is clear-eyed to you is truly what the world is, is itself that, it's a presumption. And I think in the light of Christ and in the resurrection and the whole Christ and the full return, uh, that's going to be, that's a different form, perhaps a more pernicious form of pride that has to be confronted. And you have to face the humility of God in order for it to be made low so that you can be made what you're made to be, which is God.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think the, the biblical case is, it's, it's stressed to us again and again and again. Right. And I want to make the turn now to Hebrews, but you know, when Paul says things like eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It's not entered into the heart of a human being what God has prepared, or, you know, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above. Like either we take those texts seriously or or we don't. Right. And if our eschatology is one that fits the pattern of the world as we know it now, just, extrapolated just extended out right right that's not that's not something that has not entered into the heart of a human being that's not exceeding (laughs) abundantly beyond all i can ask or think i mean that that is simply again extrapolation from current experience right and that whatever eschatology is that whatever that eschatology is it's not hopeful it's
1: not christological right And, and and therefore it's not wondrous precisely what is what what is so wonderful or shocking or surprising about this in going on indefinitely yeah yeah that that isn't remarkable anybody can anybody can turn on a you know a toy train and watch it go round round. (laughs) around that's that's nothing nothing's going on there there's no novelty there's just motion there's no novelty there's just motion and i oh yeah well said and i think the
0: not i'm not singling him out for abuse i'm really not but i think part of what's tragic about C.S. Lewis's eschatology. You know, he says, I think it's in the problem of pain. He says, you know, in the end, God loses, right? Like the, there's that which God wants, but but cannot have, because in the end, there, God says, there are only two things that can be said, God, thy will be done, or God saying to us, thy will be done. Right, right. But, but to me, the, the fundamental point is that metaphor of the great divorce. And at the very end of that book, he says, you know, what that's what we're going to find out, that this has kind of always been true. So like the end is returning us to a, a great divorce that was in the beginning, right? And that tells you that the division is not just between God and us and not just between good and evil and between the faithful and the unfaithful. It runs right into being and that which is beyond being. And that, and that just cannot be right. I mean, that that seems to me to be Pagan, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but like precisely in the sense that it is, it's reckoning from our experience of the world back to metaphysical absolutes. It's taking the groaning of Romans 8, the dividedness of Romans 7, and mapping that onto protology and eschatology, and therefore onto God. Yes. And rather than starting with the story of Jesus given to us by the gospel as the way in which we know what's true, not of our experience. I mean, we're still living Romans 7 and Romans 8. Right, right. But our hope is of this this return, this coming that is going to set the world right and bring creation to itself, right? Where we're right now, as you said, we're not even living in creation, right? We're living yeah. in that which is becoming, that which is aimed toward, that will be made full. Anyway, I, I think, not to get exercised about it, but that, I, I think there's a, that's why we keep going wrong here, I, and again, kind of at every level, as you said. I mean, we're talking about very able, well, well learned people making this mistake too, not just you know our undergrad students.
1: And don't use, yeah, yeah. And for one thing, everything you just said there is straight up. Like it's 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 again amazing that if you just look at the New Testament, even if you just look at John, you know, it's like that is exactly, that is exactly the dialectic, or if you want, or if you will, the paradox. Um, right you're in the world i've come into the world the world hasn't understood me but also take heart i have overcome the world so what is this world that needs to be overcome what is this world whose form is passing away what is this world that in revelation booming from the throne um, right the old behold i make all things new Uh, and I think there's a book maybe called all things beautiful, but (laughs) there isn't, uh, but uh, you know, I make all things new. The former things have passed. So look, I know we're all afraid of Gnosticism. I know it's it's fashionable to call everyone a Gnostic you don't like. And I know you want to like on the one hand, (laughs) I'm getting really catty here, but uh, I know some of the same people that, you know, want to make fun of like tree huggers also want to like pretend that Christianity is just about gripping the soil and knowing the truth from that very act of doing so and getting dirt under your fingernails. But, um, but, but also, and the look, as you as we all know, right, followers of uh, Maximus on this Of course, the Logia is in all things. There are seeds of the divine. The word of God is in all things. So no, no question. But the word of God isn't just there. He's there to be born. Yes. And it's in his generation that the world is birthed. And that is something that means some things will have to be sloughed off. And when you reach down and grab the dirt, guess what? Look, you should have already known from Romans 8. That dirt is groaning. That's right. It doesn't think it's just done and happy and good job, God. You made me. Yeah. No, it's groaning. It's striving. There's something more. Surely. So even so that's where I think, you know, um, well, anyway, that's yeah, that's that's kind of the I think I think we're kind of coming there to, to yeah, the head on that point.
0: Let's do that in our last 15, 20 minutes. Let's talk about
1: Maximus and origin. And wait reason. before wait, before that, I want to say one thing that yeah. it just it came couldn't be. Don't you think what you just articulated about C.S. Lewis, that is the major palpable difference between him and George MacDonald? Oh, that's the defining difference. That's right. And part of the tragedy of it, right, is that he's got George MacDonald right there with him, telling him otherwise. He's calling George. (laughs) He's calling this guy George. Come on.
0: I mean, he's read MacDonald. He says, you know, no one has come as close to the spirit of Christ. Yeah. He does an anthology of MacDonald's work, and then he has him show up in The Great Divorce, but doesn't. Listen to it. And I think right. that part of it is, it's too good to be true, right? There's a sense of in the, in the new book, I have a line like, yeah, this sounds too good to be true. That's how we know it must be. Yeah. Right. Because back to that point about it, the hope we have, it hasn't entered into our hearts.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So it, this it it's something that's exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think Right. And and McDonald just keeps making this point, right? God cannot be less good than the best good I can imagine.
1: Yes, right.
0: So theology then points to the best good we can imagine
1: and keeps telling us, and yet God is is better than that. How remarkable it is that at the same time you've got McDonald writing like Lilith and stuff, right? His, his, his that would be the great counterpoint to to what you've described in Lewis. You have someone like I just read this the other day, Paul Claudel, at the end of the yeah. 19th century when he's characterizing the past two centuries of french catholic thought he says he says our our fear of modernity and the enlightenment wasn't so much a failure of intellect but of imagination
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so anyway that that there's something really deep deeply tied i think together there to what you're saying
0: yeah i completely agree and i think it's a the fun uh, maybe i'm overstating the case but i don't think so i think There are two imaginations. There's the imagination of distinction and there's the imagination of indistinction. And the only way to hold those together Christianly is to insist that they're reciprocal. Yeah. That if you pick one or the other, your imagination Mm -hmm. will de-Christianize itself, right? You'll end up playing one thing against another Mm -hmm. and your ethics will, and your doxologies will. And I mean, right on down the line, like everything will pull apart. You'll get divorces over and over and over again, because fundamentally all things are what they are, because in Jesus, these things are reciprocally related, right? That all good opposites coincide in him and all good things commune in him. And in such a way that there's action, personal action from the human to the divine, as well as the divine to the human. Back to that. That's why I love that image of the wick so much. Yeah. Right. It's not just that the fire is heating up the sword blade right the wick is giving the light its
1: shape giving the light its life yep yep, yep and that that it's seems foundation I mean, that's it's found. almost i mean that's absolutely what, and that's i mean look it's like that right i said this the other day somebody i think it's like the, the the first shall be last in the last week for you, know, you usually make that an ethical thing of being mm-hmm. you know, be humble serve people it's also the metaphysical truth of all things and here's what's interesting about it: you still call the first, and he does that, Jesus, right? Yes. He's still calling the first the first. Yes. And it remains the called, first. It remains the first. It's just that its way of being first was not what you first thought. That's right. And that's what's so uh, yes. that's what's so up world upending about it, right? right. Is, is that is that God is here dying on a cross?
0: Yeah, that's that, absolutely. So Maximus gives us this, I think, Hebrews ten. So. I'm going to have you comment on, I'm going to read specific passages, but for those who don't know, part of what origin does and Maximus picks up on is he draws attention to the fact in Hebrews, we have not two realities, but three. So he says that you have the law, which has a shadow, not is a shadow, but has a shadow of the good things to come. And is not the true sign or the true image of those good things. So what Origen does is say, look, you've got the law and the shadow it has. Again, it's not a shadow, mm-hmm. but it has a shadow. That shadow is cast by the good things that are coming. Mm-hmm. And the law does not have, in having the shadow, it does not have the true image of the good things that are coming. Mm-hmm. So what we have, he says in the gospel, is the true image of the good things that are coming this is origin right mm-hmm. that maximus then picks up on and works with i used an analogy recently to say it's something like this right and this is not exact at all but imagine the kid i'm a kid i'm in bed i'm afraid i cry out in the night and i hear my father making his way down the hall to make the turn to my room and before he makes the turn i can see his shadow in the hallway, in the in the door. That shadow is not frightening for me, right? Because I've already made I've called, I know he's coming to me, but it's not yet him, right? So the comfort isn't there, but it's coming. And then he makes the turn, and now I see him standing in the door. That's the true image, but he's still not to me yet. Mm-hmm. Right? And then eventually he comes and takes me comforts me right and now he's that's the that's the good thing that is coming right Mm -hmm. so analogy like that to me is what origin has in mind here that the law is not bad in any way its shadow is not bad it is a sign of what's coming right it's Mm -hmm. it's not meant to be disparaging although as you know in the history of christian reading that's it's often taken exactly that way as a disparagement of law but i think hebrews is pretty clear like the law was given right Mm -hmm. like this is God's work. And Paul, of course, is clear on that as well. So I'd love, let's start there with just a little bit of riff on the way Maximus reads origins, reading of Hebrews 10. And then how we'll start to connect that back to what we've been discussing, because I think what this gives us, this reading of Hebrews 10 gives us is a way of saying all of this so that we can affirm the goodness of what is now, but in anticipation of that, that good, that has not been, that has not been seen, hasn't entered into our hearts yet. So talk, talk a little bit about Maximus's reading of origin on Hebrews 10.
1: Yes. So if I recall rightly, it's um, Maximus t- yeah, takes up that same schema. He adds a little bit to it, um, yeah. I think in a few ways, and you you might, you, it might be a little fresher for you. So you might have to fill in some of the details here, but it seems like, if I remember he's, he, he wants to make a point that that the truth to come, right is not uh he does call it the coming in fact one one point he calls it the coming archetype or the yes. archetype to come which is already interesting for right because usually you might right. think of we an archetype as static, static and, and already there yeah maybe producing limitations. so above or but before rather than to come so the so there's a horizontal sort of um right you know focus here uh an eschatological one i might say so there's there's that right it's it's to come but also, when it one of the things he says, I think it's in that passage. If I'm if I'm remembering rightly, is mm-hmm. he says, but that that when it does come, it won't even it's not even right really to call it the truth. That's because right. Because he says truth has an opposite, which is falsity, right? Yes. I mean, Can I, error. Let me let me read it. Let me read. Yeah, it yeah. It. Do, do it. it. Yeah, do that. So it's it's Ambiguum thirty-seven, yeah, section eight,
0: right? So here, here we go. Everything that is now reckoned by us to be truth is now, in fact, a type. Mm-hmm. and the shadow and image of the greater word for the word who created all things and who is in all things, according to the relation of present to the future. That's one of the things I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. He is in all things in a cor- He's in all things, according to the relation of present to the future mm-hmm. is comprehended both in type and in truth in which he is present, both in being and manifestation, right? So type truth being manifestation. And yet is he is manifested in absolutely nothing. So he's be he's able to be present in being in manifestation, but he's not actually manifested in, a, in anything. For inasmuch as he transcends the present and the future, mm-hmm. he transcends both type and truth.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: For he contains nothing. And this is the point you were just making. He contains nothing that might be considered contrary to him. Truth has a contrary, falsehood. Therefore, the word in whom the universe is gathered, like Gosh, such an astounding line. The word in whom the universe is gathered transcends the truth. And also, insofar as he's man and God, he transcends all humanity and divinity.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's, and I think actually, yeah, I remember we we talked a little bit about this over email. That's, yeah. the, that's the passage that in the book. Are you with. in the book? Yeah. Because yeah, it, it really there are a few you know well, there's more than a few of those in uh in maxis where you sort of just think like that's the whole picture like a nut like yep. right there, like one it's a paragraph about everything it's everything yeah and so okay so a few of these subtleties here one is so he notes two things about the relation right like and i like the analogy you're using now actually it's a little clearer to me what why you thought that way or why you used it so you've got that presence right that isn't that isn't still yet You know, it's more like the shadow it's present but it's not totally fulfilled so clearly one thing we have here with the horizontal sort of uh, dimensionality here is an arrival the arriving archetype the the relation of present to future now maximus is of that of that opinion which happens to hold up pretty well nowadays in modern science that um you know um t- time is perspectival it is you might say um, he often says that space and time are that without which things can't exist. So they're like fundamental conditions, but and something goes always spatio temporally located. Mm-hmm. In other words, finite, finite. Yep. And that's crucial because where's he going here? He's going to something transcending that. Yep. Um, so from our perspective, so perspectival, the word, the greater word is present in, and as in all things, According to the relation of present to future. Well, what is the relation of present to future? Well, it's um, a later finite moment will traverse an end and become present and then past. Mm. So he's, it's another way of saying he's r- arriving, sure, but there's something deeper there because, and this is where I think the, the subtleties are just astounding. I think we're apt again is another one of those passages where we apt to think, okay, I sort of I think I pretty much know what he's saying. And it would go roughly like this: God is beyond all things you know it sounds like he's just sort of being really really flowery but really all he's wanting to say is nothing can contain god god's really huge his magnet you know his, his magnitude is sort of the grandeur is beyond all and, yep. uh so he's in some sense omnipresent he's in all things he's not limited by by presence as we experience it but whatever so kind of like a, a somewhat intuitive point but you know he doesn't actually say that's right what, what does he say first 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 he says that what we reckon to be the truth is a type is a type yeah so one reason why the the, one reason why the word is related right now to us and present in all things according to present and future that is an arrival through finite time an arrival moving through finite time is because what we consider the truth right now is actually a type in other words One reason why the world isn't just evidently the accomplished, achieved incarnation, always in all things, he talks about in Bingham 7, is not just because God is beyond that. It's actually because things are not yet fully capable of receiving him who is coming. That's right. So it's not that they are fixed and God's beyond fixed, finite limits. It's that the things that we consider true because and we perceive them as fixed and limited are actually not even themselves yet. Well, yeah, sure. they're, they're,
0: they're the things that are unfixed. Exactly. Anything, right? Like they're the, we can't take it all in creation. We can't take all of creation in as it has taken all of him in. And and that's, what's making the process, the process, right. And Exactly.
1: Right. And so, and, and look, that's where the passage goes, right? The next, the, the whole point is you, you move beyond that and you say, okay, so what is, what is, what is coming exactly? Who is coming? What's the shape of that? What's the form of that? The logic of that? And what you get right there is, is explicitly it's the whole Christ he yes. in whom the Word in whom the universe that is all things are gathered straight straight there you might that's basically a resonance of ephesians 1.10. you know uh all things are recapitulated in him it's the same language he uses in a Big Game of seven for when we will all be in hypothesizing him we are therefore the members of the bodies of uh, members of the body of Christ et cetera all things will be in in hypothesizing in him. So the point is, the arrival comes to us, we perceive it from our perspective, we're still perceiving it as a finite approach, according to the relation of present to future. It looks like, just like, uh, and this is where the analogy really is an analogy, because it breaks down, and you would say, so the fulfillment of the arrival, the movement of arrival of the word, doesn't actually, and this is the great inverse, right, inversion, it doesn't finally just simply take the form of the final episode along a long series of that's events right. and chains. What it is is actually that it is that initially, and that's how we're perceiving it as an arrival. But when it actually arrives, it will be the fulfillment and the consummation of all moments and times and places, always and in all things his incarnation. And, and that's why I think Maximus makes that last little subtle point. Mm-hmm. He's not even the truth. Yes. He transcends the truth. And and insofar as he is God and man, which is to say essentially, by the way, (laughs) he's essentially God and essentially man. Um, He transcends humanity and divinity. In other words, that. and, And so this is where, yes, we had to distinguish conceptually between God and man. But when you are looking at the one, the whole Christ. You no longer can separate them, and they're interpenetrating. In fact, they're one reality, and that is exactly the form, the character, and destination of the universe itself, that word in whom all the universe is gathered. So what's amazing to me is that even though we approach and we strive, and like Paul says, we're straining ahead, I'm not yet attained, and we're always preaching and talking and thinking that way. That's the most natural way we do it. It's intuitive. Um, I think, you know, I'm my destinations in the future. It's coming. It's it's going to happen. Things we think of actualization always along the continuum of a series. Mm -hmm. We're moving through stages. We're getting or progressing. But the amazing kind of inversion at the end of all things is exactly because the consummation isn't just an ascent. But is simultaneously the words descent into all things. It's Mm -hmm. it's always bidirectional, reciprocal to come back to that word. That's right. That's right. Because that's the case, then the form it takes can't even adequately any longer be captured by he's arrived. That's right. And this is why I'll just throw this out there, something I can't sustain here, but uh (laughs) someday maybe that's the way I would ultimately want to read, you know, uh is divisions of nature. Hmm. If you've if you know, I'll just recall them really quickly. I know this is getting a little nerdy here, but so, so Aries has four divisions of nature. I won't get into how he gets it and why he calls it nature. Let's just say reality. Four divisions of reality. Four ways of considering reality. He'll say he'll say the first is that is that which is the uh, uncaused and causes or creates. Okay, so that's God. That's the first way we usually approach God. We talked about that earlier. Yep. You know, I approach him. I'm from him. He's before me, etc. Yep. That's that's the natural way. The second is that which is created and creates. And that gets a little more technical. We talked about that earlier. Book three, this is the word. Somehow the creation is in the word and somehow the word is created in creation. They're, they're a coincidence of opposites there, okay? Let's move on. We got the third division is that which is not create or is, yeah, is created and does not create. Not created, yeah. This is like bodies. This is like matter, rocks, the lowest of the low of, of all the effects. They don't create anything further. But then that last division, probably the weirdest of all. Mm-hmm. That which does not create, or that is not created and does not create. And region is very clear the first and the fourth are God.
0: Right. Yes, man. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so so what I'd want to do is pair this whole movement of that entire text with this text that you're pointing out from Big Game 37 and others like it, and say, what it Why is it that Eregen, you know, there's one intuitive way where he he says it's almost like an Aristotelian way of thinking of God. Well, God doesn't create like he's not cause before because he's really the end of all things. And so he's dragging all movement towards himself and and in him all things find rest. Okay, but also it's not just everything finds rest, because if we were sticking with that first division only, you can you can say, well, God creates everything like a boomerang and it flies back to him. Yeah. But actually what he's what Erieger is saying at the end is right, and again, remember, let's remember the form of the end or the return is nothing less than the Totus Christus, the whole Christ. That whole Christ, it's just as right to say it looks like it never created anything. That's right. In other words, that serial it's progressive it movement is. It's, it's simple. simple yes, what we, when you get there you will realize the destination doesn't even follow the logic the intuitive logic of present to future, right? Of arrival coming to you. In okay. fact, the consummation of all that is somehow even greater than your initial perspective of that progression. And and the reason that has to be so, I think, is that point he makes about
0: God not knowing himself as a what? Because if God if God is truly all in all, like if just put it that bluntly, if we take Scripture seriously when it says yeah. in the end God is all in all, yeah, and think and we know as we are known. Right. So if if God is all in all, and our knowing of all of that is in the way in which we ourselves are known, right, mm-hmm. then of course there has to be some way in which everything is surprising and excessive. It takes us out of ourselves. Beyond any whatness that we mm-hmm. that we could name, right? The I, I I think that is pretty clearly just drawing a conclusion from what the scriptures say. This must be if the scriptures are right. This must be true that whatever creation is, and and I think Gregory gets this. Gregory of Nyssa, to, mm-hmm. to name the right one, right? That the reason he's <laughs> drawing on that, like the whether it's the life of Moses or his Song of Songs commentaries homilies. I mean, it's the sense of we're stretching out toward God. The glory is at some point we begin to stretch out as God does. So right now we're moving toward God. At some point we are taken up into the movement of God toward us and toward all things. And then you can no longer tell. Now we're back to in, in what sense it becomes indistinguishable. Yes. God's work in us, giving us our uniqueness, giving us our distinction. Precisely the more of, I mean, again, this is scripture. This is why Paul says the culminating fruit of the spirit is Mm self-control. The more I'm taken up into the movements of the spirit, the more of the spirit rules in my life, the more I'm just doing what I want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Augustine famously says that, right. Love God and do what you want. Mm -hmm. This just gives us a way metaphysically to say how that must be so. Yeah. Right. It's not just permission from God. That's the way reality works because that's the way God's life happens yes like, this is God's life that going so now I'm back to whoever it was that said to you that that's frightening Man, I mean I don't I don't know how you can be frightened by that going out because it's the going out of someone we know like we're not talking about exactly going out in abstraction we're talking about the going out of this God right the going out into the far country of this Jesus
1: yes and yeah, I, I, I don't know how that could be frightening yeah, God is not a big what that's going to smash all the littler what's. Yeah. Um, and so there's no, yeah. And, and that's that's really, I think at the end of the day, that's, you know, people, I think, make this, again, pretty intuitive mistake pretty, um, pretty often, which is, well, you know, God doesn't need the world in the way like you need nourishment to sustain your body. And so it would be wrong to say, like, God adds something in order, like, when he is all in all. Well, yeah for one thing you have a little bit of a problem because you're essentially you're you're basically mangling the sense of the words beyond recognition because is like god let's think about each of those words god is that's an identity statement all in all everything that is in everything god is um And so really what we're saying is God, no, actually, when God is all in all, it's not that God is all in all, God uh, is accidentally or incidentally related in some extrinsic way to what happens to be. I mean, that's the sort of, that's what you get at the end of the factory of qualifications you send the line through. And, um, and so, and so that's where you get other sort of retrospective judgments like, well, in fact, God could have created nothing at all. Um, God didn't need the world whatsoever, etc. Now, what, what I like about the perspective we've been developing here and talking about is, in a, in a certain sense, of course, we agree. As, 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 of course, I agree God didn't gain something. But But notice, whether you say God could have not created anything and therefore just remained a beginning that never began anything else, right, in that first division. Uh, or or, or you just you might skip ahead to the fourth and just say he didn't create anything. Um, or you say God, like in a process, a crudely processed sense, like sort of figures himself out and stumbles around and becomes who he finally eventually succeeds in being. You know, both of those are just progr- uh, logics of progression and seriality.
0: Yes. In other words, they're
1: both just fine uh, ways of making God finite. They're two opposite ways, back to reciprocity and logical relation. Those are two ways to make God finite that's right you're either thinking of god as end and yes. so he could have just simply not been the end of any or you're just thinking of, of god as sort of in, you know incidental cause uh who, who may or may not have been cause or creator or lord or any of that stuff
0: that's right and that's um, why jensen yeah. insists on and this is more in his earlier work than later but what he means by religion so you know, you know he has this book religion against itself in which he kind of spells this out and but his his contention in those works is that religion isn't i mean my words not his but it's this point we need to make god finite because if we don't make god finite we don't have any way of leveraging god to control the future right like we we have to find some way of managing life and managing particularly how the future comes to us and the way we do that is we make god finite we we make god calculable right and, and mappable right and his his contention is what makes the gospel gospel is that god's unmappability and unpredictability god's infinity is the infinity of this man jesus whose right. story we know in full and right. whose character has been fully revealed right and that that man's infinity is what sets the conditions for all things for god and for us Right. And so what, what's to me, what's just absolutely life changing about it is that that tells you you don't need to control the future in any sense, right? And you don't need your theology to make God calculable in that sense because he's identifiable in the only sense that matters. We know whose infinity we're talking about and therefore the character of that infinity. And we can trust ourselves to what we don't know because of who we know, right? And we, we have a, we, we've seen
1: him fully disclosed right we know exactly who we're dealing with that's that's excellent um because here's and i think this is this is why this uh, there's a certain pernicious way of making god finite which is also though it's pernicious because it's um it's it's uh, distracting or i should say concealing self-concealing um, and so it's also why it's so common is this. You you don't there's <laughs> it's not like the only way to make God finite is to create a bronze statue yes, or, or yep. a golden calf. Yep. You another another way to make God finite is to say God could never be comprehended. Um, God could never like you can do it by negation. That's the real insight here. I can say, you know, God is that reality which could have existed without the world that is to say without his act of creation, without his act of becoming all in all, and he would have just as much been God. But you know what you've done just there? Um you've made God the first domino. And yep. the and the sequence and to be honest with you, there's nothing more comprehensible than the first domino.
0: Yeah, right. That's the most basic <laughs>
1: Finite concept, it's, the, it's right? the easiest thing
0: yeah absolutely
1: it's here there he is at the beginning and it's not you know and people will, you know this the same theologians will sort of well i'm not a deist or whatever fine you're not functionally a deist but you're virtually one yeah. you're just you're just saying god happened to be by his own sort of arbitrary choice he happened to not be the deist god or or the god who doesn't even have a world to be a deist god too mm-hmm. um, but he could have been and that's the that's the kind of thing where it's like it's it's sort of dressed up in all this language and often it's pious language of you know god is beyond and how could you possibly think god could be so tangled up with the world that is somehow a part of his identity even and so when you read is saying like he's creating himself and even knowing himself in creation that's like heterodox that's way outside of the bounds and the truth is in the name of this sort of I think simplistic, I'll put it that way, a simplistic orthodoxy, you're just as much and perhaps even more perniciously successful in making God finite than if you just set up a golden calf. Yeah, And that's kind of the thing that about the incarnation is that it constantly explodes every version of finitude, making God f- merely finite. And that's what makes it, I think, a source of continual power and regeneration and renewal and so forth.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. We'll, we'll- the, uh, reference e- Eckhart as we as we wrap up so there's this famous line probably his most famous line certainly one of them you know maybe his most famous line is God rid me of God but in that group of famous Eckhart sayings is the eye by which I see God and the eye with by which God sees me are the same right now I'm not I'm not an Eckhart expert so I don't know exactly how he's grounding that. But Christologically, that has to be true. Mm. Right? The, I mean, again, just based on what the New Testament itself says, how how are we going to know as we are known if that kind of knowing has not been realized? Yep. And we, of course, are always saying it has been realized, right? Jesus is the I by which God knows us and by which we know God, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm-hmm. That, when Paul is making his, you know, the claims you've already quoted, like, I no longer live, Christ lives in me, and so on. This, Paul Young just did a a talk in our Hebrews class, drawing attention to the way hypostasis is used in Hebrews. Faith is the substance. Yes,
1: exactly. Jesus
0: is the substance. Right. Well, of course, both have to be true, right? Because all things are accomplished and held together in Jesus' personal life, right? He's the one who, as God and as creature, lives both God's life and the creature's life into the harmony of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And because the gospel tells us who he is, and we we've seen him all the way to the end. Like we we know we know it all about him. He's mm-hmm. died. Right. And that has been and, and then has been raised to life as that one ruling and reigning in all things. Like that's the ground of our hope. And and that's why our hope can't be finite either our hope has to truly have that that mark of excess and the the anticipation of that which is unthinkably good for us
1: yeah you know i think i think really (laughs) what's remarkable about hebrews is the theme of fear Mm. You fear know, of death. You, you, yeah fear of death and you have not you have not approached a mountain that's you know you're, there's a intimacy there he's opened up the high priest he's opened up there's a sense of something has been overcome and of course there's a bad anti- anti-semitic way to read that and I, we don't want to do that like oh we've overcome all that sort of you know whatever sort of bad religion but i think the better the better read there and what ties together hebrews a mystic theologian like Eckhart and then like what you were saying about Jensen in that book is is you know you don't have to fear the future etc is exactly this since God has proven that he is infinite precisely because no fine making finite whether positive or negative encapsulates him right back to Maximus insofar as he is God and man he transcends all not humanity just humanity but divinity then that is the fundamental ground of the hope. That's the hypostasis, the hypothesis of of, of faith, which Maximus will also say, uh, makes your your soul, therefore, it will give birth to the word in you. Something also Eckhart says, making your your soul another mother of God. Um, Because he's already done that and he's overcome the world, you can simultaneously face the world with clear eyes, but not mistake that for the actual world. Yes, right and you don't have to worry about that grasping which finite concept is better should i use a negative one here what does that move us in the dialectic we need to go back and forth because ultimately there has to it's like a pyramid here we have to find the tip the top which yeah. excludes everything else no 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 the, the whole way that whole way of thinking that kind of either or dialectic which fuels fear mm-hmm. is no is abolished in christ yeah, yeah. And so that, that, I think, that's where it kind of comes back down and becomes a little bit more about the practical spiritual life. And it's one, one way, this is the last thing I'll say, one way that I've really kind of come to see how this has a profound effect on, I think, one's spirit and the mentality and whole approach is so much of what fuels our deceptions, which then fuels our wrong passions and then our acts, our sins, is I think fundamentally this conviction, whether or not we recognize it, that whatever there there is a good out there that I might miss out on, yep. ultimately. Yep. Because you know goodness is confined to finitude, and you know it only happens here and there. And you know here I am a, a stay at home dad, and like what about the, all the other adults in the world and all the benefits they get to experience? And am I missing out? And man, what do I need to do to position myself better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Et cetera right. And now here I am grasping, trying to gain territory, rule a little patch of earth, whatever. All of that is coming from fear and fear comes from the fundamental deception that finitude is final. Mm-hmm. And if you really believe, not just that Christ is the truth, but that he is the truth as that person who is both positively known, but known as the exploder of all mm-hmm. you know, final finitudes, then you will fundamentally believe that there is nothing that's even possibly good that you will ever ultimately miss out on, no matter what, what things look like here and now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this, again, I think is the plain teaching of scripture, right? When yes. Jesus says something like it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is only meaningful if finitude is not, is not final. Yeah. Again, it, it can only truly be more blessed to get, uh, that or you have some kind of masochistic, martyristic account of the world, right? But if if it's truly more blessed to give than to receive, then that means there can be asymmetry, right? Precisely in that I I can be myself, not as the object of of, re, of reception, right? Not receiving, but in giving. Yep. And I mean that. That is, I think, the root of all fear, right? Is that I won't get enough of what yes. I need, whether that's the good versus the bad or the better good versus the lesser good, like, or the good I know versus the good I can't yet see. I mean, all of those kind of divisions, separations, divorces are rooted in the fear that I cannot give if I do not receive. And my and my receiving has to at least match my giving. Yes. And what Jesus is saying is, only makes sense in it can only be true if what Ereugena and Origen and Maximus have have seen in the scriptures is in fact what is being said which is there at the heart of all things is the infinity of this life mm-hmm. and that's what determines what what my life is and how my life goes because he's the one who's who's living it it's all unfolding in his life. So, I mean, we could go on forever, but yeah, I mean, that to me, like these things, and I, I try to press this with everybody who, you know, they read, you know, at that line in Athanasius that John Bear drew my attention to about Jesus constantly drawing divinity into himself. Mm-hmm. Right? So we've been talking mostly about what comes out, but Athanasius can turn that around and talk about Jesus drawing it out of the father.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But whether we're talking about Athanasius or Aerygene you know, or Maximus, these astounding passages, you know, the folks in my world are like, that sounds bizarre too good to be true all you have to do is just read the new testament again like those right. there are crazier claims than that on every <laughs> page exactly.
1: yes there are <laughs> every
0: page like there are just insane things being said by those first witnesses of jesus right and what what we're getting from origin maximus and et etc thankfully and from you jordan is a kind of Hey, what if we took this seriously? <laughs> like, exactly. like, what if we actually believed what the scriptures say about Jesus.
1: Yes, yep, absolutely, yeah. It's you know, it's like uh, just to, just to like put a sort of pin in the reciprocity theme we've been talking about all throughout. You know, I've told people before. Look, you can just go to go to one short book in the New Testament called Colossians. Um, I'll give you two quick passages that sums it all up. Right, Colossians one twenty seven. The mystery is Christ in you. There we go. Okay, that's good. Christ in you. Uh, Let's jump to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when he shall appear, you yourselves, he says, your life, you yourselves will appear. So look, we got it right there. Christ is, the mystery is Christ in you. And your life, that is to say you, by the way, true, true, who you truly are, is with Christ in God. These are hasn't even appeared yet. It hasn't even appeared yet. So there we are right with Maximus, the relation of present to to, it's coming. And and from your perspective right now, sure. It looks to you like it's coming something like a future event, something to come an arrival. Um, But really, like you said, the the perfection, the the fullness, the actual arrival, that you might say the parousia Mm -hmm. is um, it will be who you always have been. Just as much as who you're going to be and neither one is as adequate really yeah that's right man this has been so good
0: as always we'll do it again soon jordan yeah thanks for having me
1: chris oh yeah absolutely i I really (laughs) appreciate it
0: and i'll be emailing you questions between now and then so (laughs) well i've got plenty of questions for you too so cool man great (laughs) talking with you enjoy your family we'll talk soon okay sounds good man all right